Welcome to the Cosmic Reality Radio Show with Nancy Hopkins and Walt Silva and produced by Colleen Kelly. This is a production of Haggy Shack Radio, simulcast over Cosmic Reality Radio, and the theme song is by Renata Jet and Jet Music. Alrighty, you are live. If I turn the mic on. <laughs> Hi everybody, this is Nancy Hopkins. We're at the Cosmic Reality Radio Show. It's Tuesday, June 6th, 2017. I am here with Colleen Kelly producing from Haggy Shack Radio or HaggyShack.com, simulcasting over cosmic reality. And Walt is here with me, Walt Silva. And Walt, come in and say hi. <laughs> How are you doing tonight? Hello, everybody. Hello, audience, all four of you. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> well, you know, it, we, don't, we do the live shows and... Um, there's not too many people that may be listening when we do them. But, again, we have a lot of people all over the world that, that do listen to the archives and the YouTubes. and So we do it because we do it. And I'm just very proud of the, the you know shows that we do get out there. And I thank you, Walt, so much for staying with me. And, Colleen, I, I can never have enough gratitude for what you do on a daily basis. Um so before we get started back into the Anastasia books, uh, is there anything you guys want to talk about, either one of you? Did anything happen in the world I might have missed? <laughs> uh, I saw the latest uh, Fulford review, but I, I didn't send it to anyone because most people are bored by what he says. So, But he said that uh, uh, the main thing in the article is... It has to do with this uh, gold mine in Indonesia that uh, it appears that the locals, after some kind of extended war, were were seized the mine away from the hands of a Rothschild company, Pino Tinto or something like that. They were the ones who made that mine, and they poisoned the, the environment with all the materials from the mine, and they treated the people like slaves. So after some kind of a local war, they took back the mine, the, the mine, and <clears throat> so he says that he and others are going to be visiting uh, the king there because he says that that site and there's other, like five other sites, uh, there's trillions of dollars worth of gold that they want to use, you know, to you know, help end poverty and help the planet. And according to his conversation with this, local king, the Rothschilds were planning to destroy the entire island just to be able to get to the gold. Uh, the other part of interest in, the, in the, the rest of the article is that he claims that I don't follow the news of what is it that Donald Trump did in Paris. He pulled away from this whole carbon emissions thing, which is he and others insist that this global warming is just a hoax. So he says that by Trump pulling away from all that gobbledygook, uh, now the French and the Germans are <laughs> are not being defended from Russia because apparently before since the administration was participating in that whatever this carbon emission agreement was, um, 
the U.S. was protecting these two countries from the Russians. So he says after some huffing and puffing, now these two guys are trying to curry favor with the Russians. So, <laughs> but like everything else, you know, it could mean something, it could mean nothing, I don't know. Well, my first indication that the climate situation was um, not what it was being purported by Al Gore was when I went to see his movie and couldn't stay awake in it. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I'm going like, no, this they this message is not not true. Otherwise, I would be awake. Why am I falling asleep? And uh, so then I started to look at it in a little bit of a different way. And I don't remember, and I'm sure there's even more information out now, but it was all a scam. I mean, is, the, is there climate change? Yes, there's climate change. There's continually climate change. The whole history of the planet has been climate change. And suddenly everybody panics because there's supposedly a climate change, and then they blame it on, on humanity. It's the carbon emissions. But the reality is, is that it's not just Earth that's heating up. All of the planets are heating up. The sun is heating up. We're in an area in the uh, uh, galaxy that is filled with particles of dust and radiation that fuels the sun, therefore also fuels the solar system with heat. So I don't think there's cars on on, on Jupiter. <laughs> You know, and so then I looked at it and I said, well, what is, and again, it was a control thing. You know, it's always goes back to control and who's making money off of what. And also, you know, let's keep people worried about the fact that the planet is heating up. And then, therefore, we can tell them that, oh, when we're putting the chemtrails out there that's really killing everything, uh, we can tell them it's because they, we're protecting, we're working on the climate problem. So... Again, um, I know that people can argue until they're, you know, really upset with themselves um, about this one way or the other. But I don't see. Where, I don't see where the what? Say again. What? You mean you're trying to say the Earth is not flat? Well, according to Gene Rockefeller, it was at one time when everybody believed it was. <laughs> Uh, I love Jane. She brings in such interesting thoughts. But um, so, you know, I, the fact that he did that uh, doesn't surprise me. Um, to be honest, I, I, I've gotten to the point where, where anything he does doesn't surprise me. Because it, the thing that would surprise me if he stopped doing things that surprise me, then I'd be worried probably. You know, because he's a he's he's he is who he is, and let's just see how the hand plays out. But no, I uh, I'm not on the the side of climate thing. You know, even in the book Anastasia, she pointed out um, that in, in the beginning, yes, that when the, when the when the climate in area changed, it was the Earth's way of telling humanity and and the other animals. You guys got to move out of this area for a while because I've got to uh, heal. You know, the fact that you were there and you've made your scars and you've done your stuff, you got to get out of here because I've got to, you know, fix myself. And so they would move to someplace else and then, you know, 
that place would get a little worn out, and so then they may, maybe they'd move right back to the place that now is healed again. So it's – and the other thing is is that they say, oh, well, in, in so many thousands of years or hundreds of years, we've never had this before. The planet's millions of years old. What kind of statistics are those? Yeah. It's like uh, – it reminds me when I um... – when I went to high school in Argentina, it was technical school. It was a six-year school. So in the first three years, you had to study everything that a regular kid sees in five years of high school. And the following three years, it was all college-level technical stuff. And one of our all, all our professors were actually engineers. Either they were working for private companies or they were working for the nation or they were working for their state. So these were serious professionals that knew their stuff. My favorite professor was uh, a hydrologist. He invented his own scale for uh, doing the calculations for, you know, when you do uh, groundwater wells. Uh, he came up with a new scale that made uh, all the calculations much, much easier and better. Um, he, there was, there used to be a panic, like, like this global warming thing, but in a, in a, a bit of a more micro scale, uh, where I come from, the landscape is very much like California. You know, it's arid, creosote bush, cactus. So, uh, all the irrigation that's done on the farms, it's either river water or underground water. And in the sixties, there was this, you know, like global warming scare. Oh, all the rivers are drying up and all of this, and we're going to end up without water and blah, blah, blah. So this this professor of mine, he didn't buy into all that panicking. And what he decided to do is he he looked at all the measurements that were done because measurements in the rivers began in 1917. That's when they started measuring the spill the yearly spill on, on the rivers. So they had all this, the state had all this d- data gathered up in these, you know, huge filing rooms of all the measurements. And he had been studying um, a British scientist who had ascertained studying the rings, the growth rings on trees, that the sun had an 11-year cycle. And in, within this 11 years, it went from a maximum to a minimum and so on and so forth. They had a sine wave. And also there was another 400-year uh, cycle. So he's looking at all this information as he's making mental connections, as he's thinking, what are, what are the rivers are affected by a cycle as well? So he says, whoever came up with this business that we, we were going to end up in a total drought, all they did is they plotted all that data on a straight line equation. So what he did is he applied a sine wave equation to all the measurements. And lo and behold, he started getting a sine wave on the graph showing that the rivers had a um, uh, a 100-year cycle. So what happens is 1967 was the valley in that sine wave. It was the driest year ever. So from 1967 on, you know, 50 more years, you're going to be hitting – a peak, and that's exactly what's happened. You know, there's water coming out of everywhere. You know, where there was no water, now there's water, because that's exactly what the rivers are doing. They have a, a hundred-year cycle. You know, they, they are not—they are not going to die 
waterless and there is not going to be a permanent drought. And all it was was just this man working by himself, reinterpreting the data that had been gathered by others. So um, this is just one little teeny tiny example. Well, the, the, I mean, we know, we know there's changes, but it's always changes. And we just have to work with Mother Nature in order to, uh, you know, not hurt ourselves and not hurt her. The thing you said about Fulford and the mine, now, this, this, uh, these mines, the, I'm assuming that it was the people of the islands that were actually the miners, correct? The, uh, paragraph is not too long if you don't mind me reading it. Oh, yeah, go ahead, please. Okay. Okay, so this is June 5th. Okay. This Saturday, a delegation from the White Dragon Society, including this writer, will be heading to Bougainville and the Solomon Islands to meet King David Pei II to discuss how to reopen the Panguna Mine, which contains about $170 trillion worth of gold and copper. Furthermore, there are six other mine sites under the control of King David and his people on the island, meaning that many hundreds of trillions of dollars worth of metal can be made available to benefit the people and living creatures of the planet Earth. Now, here he's using letters, and maybe you can tell me what the letters mean. The total amount of money the OECD spent on development in 2016 was $142.6 So if even a small fraction of the wealth of just one of these six sites was used, there would be at least 10 times more money available to help the poor and protect the environment than is now being spent. The Panguna mine was developed by the Rothschild-controlled firm Rio Tinto. However, locals, angered at the pollution caused by the mine, as was at the lousy treatment they were accorded by the mine's owners, seized control after a long war of resistance. Representatives of King David also claimed that the Rothschild owners of the mine were contemplating destroying the entire island in order to extract its mineral wealth. You can be sure, based on their track record, the Rothschilds were not planning to spend the money they hoped to earn from this to help the planet. Representatives of Rio Tinto did not respond to multiple attempts of, uh, to be contacted by the White Dragon Society. If an agreement is not reached with the Rothschilds, the White Dragon Society will, if necessary, use as much weight of the world's military as needed to help King David make the gold and other metals available in an environmentally friendly manner for the benefit of the planet. One idea is to use the mine tailings as landfill in order to create new land land for living creatures so that the overall impact of the mining of the island will be to create more space for living creatures than existed before. The White Dragon Society will report more on the situation after a June 10th to the 14th visit to the island. Well, so, first, if that much if that much gold was lost, I can't imagine why we don't have some kind of a military operation going on there to save the the dark side's gold. However, that said, <laughs> uh, Anastasia actually in the third book points out to Vladimir that 
the changes that are occurring are changes that are occurring in an individual way. And she actually mentions the fact that those people who are minors, and some other people, but it was the minors that jumped out at me when I read it, know the damage that they're doing to, to Earth, to the planet. And that on a very fundamental level, they are getting to a point where they can't do it anymore. They can't rape and pillage her anymore. So she, she said that, and now you're giving me a concrete example of the very fact that these miners could no longer agree to work with the pollution and stood their ground and then took over the mines. Now, if this is actually happened, it's dramatic. <laughs> well, the, um, I don't think he's, I, I don't know. It, it doesn't, like I said, when, when I read the stuff, I just pay attention to what I'm feeling like you had with that movie, you fell asleep. <laughs> so when I'm reading something that's made up, you, I thought I feel inside the contraction and here's another example of this business with the gold. Uh, let me allow me to read you this part where it says, uh, in any case, the Gazarian mafia has been suffering a stunning series of defeats in recent months as the planetary control grid collapses in increasingly visible ways. Most importantly, but in a manner still hidden from most of the world, the Gazarians are running out of gold, and most of the world no longer accepts their paper, which is not backed by anything but a rapidly evaporating group mine control mechanism. Gazarian attempts to get gold in Indonesia, Japan, the Philippines, and elsewhere in Asia are all being stonewalled. Multiple sources agreed. Last week, representatives from Citibank and U.S. Ambassador to Indonesia, Joseph Donovan, promised Indonesian President Joko Widodo, they would wipe out all of Indonesia's external debt in exchange for 12,500 tons of gold, but they left empty-handed. White Dragon Society sources in Indonesia says. <laughs> so, they're, they're trying, they're going to multiple places trying to get to stay in, afloat, and it seems that they're getting they're hitting a wall wherever they go. They just seem to be so marginalized. <laughs> Nobody wants to play with them anymore. One of the things that you have to, I have to comment on this, that, uh, and this has been said for a while now, not only by Fulford, but even, you know, other writers like, you know, uh, Wilcock, who relies so heavily on insiders and whistleblowers and all that. <clears throat> that their, their biggest money crunch was their inability to afford um, mercenary armies. You know, whenever they're violating and raping some part of the world and the people that are being exploited say, ouch, this hurts, first thing they do is they bring in their mercenary armies and whoever dares to utter a complaint, you know, gets wiped out. But that's not the case in, in this. Whatever happened here, you know, these people took back their mind and no mercenary army showed up to kill anybody. Otherwise, they, these people would not be talking to the local uh, king here. You know, there would be somebody 
you know, some uh, some patsy running the show in the name of his his bosses or her bosses. So let, let's look at this event because from a let's say a uh, tarnished experience with Matrix reality, you and I both agree that it's unlikely in the old Matrix that this would have occurred because they would have sent it in anti-revolutionaries to fight off the good guys and you know make it look like they're the good guy and it would have been this bloodbath and yet it didn't happen now we can look at that and say well gee i wonder what 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 happened we can give a lot of 3d reasons maybe for why it didn't go out go out that way but on the other side of it if we accept the reality that the matrix is absolutely falling apart and that there's another matrix replacing it and in that matrix is the energy of Anastasia which she probably would interpret based on only the three books that I have read and I have you know I mean I I was speed reading the first two I then got the collection of books and in getting the collection of books, I found that indeed, when you read these things, you 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 do go into a very uh, out of body experience when you sit there and you're just reading it to get the in- information. And well, did, you notice, did, did you notice what she said? Since you read the third one or are reading the third one, I'm I don't know if I'm halfway or three quarters away. Um. When Vladimir is told the story of Anastasia's dialogue with that scientist, what she had to say regarding the book and the music of the soul. Remember? I have I have read the, I have read the book. Um, I just actually finished it today. Um, okay, now w- w- what were you referencing again? Well, because you're 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 expressing. You know what one experiences while reading the book, right. and part in the third book when she you remember the third book they try to take her by force, so you you're aware of that. But during the dialogue b- before the whole event went down, when she was speaking to the scientists who wanted to convince her to come back with us and we're going to set you up in a nature preserve and you're going to have your animals there and blah 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 you know nice little human zoo. Um, <clears throat> And they got to talking about uh, science and healing and the uh, and like music that that heals and all of that. And the scientists wanted he just wanted hard facts, like okay, so what technology can we use to generate these sounds that would do this? And she says the only technology you need is the human soul. Only the human soul is capable of generating the correct sounds, the correct music that will do the healing, that will do the changes. And he goes. But how can you do that? We know with a book. We know where's the technology. And she goes, the book is the technology. The same way that sheet music is what allows you to play an instrument. The book is like sheet music for a piano, where the person reading it, the soul is playing, is translating all those the words and the content of the book into its own internal music, and that's where the transformation is happening. So that was incredibly insightful that's why so many people experience so many changes after reading even the very first book 
Let me read the um, actual quote here, okay? Uh, she She's responding to him. You are right. A book does not make sounds, but it can serve as a score, like a musical score. The reader will involuntarily utter within himself any sounds he reads. Thus, the hidden com- combination in the text will resonate in the reader's soul in their pristine form with no distortions. They are bearers of truth and healing, and they will fill the soul with inspiration. No artificial instrument is capable of reproducing what resonates in the soul. I mean, I love the way she puts things, too. Yeah. Because, again, um, we're working with English that's translated from Russian. And I want to make a comment about the the books. On the uh, promo for today's show, I had two volumes, or both, okay, there's two two series, there's two different editions of the series. And I had both books on on the promo, so you can see there's two different covers. What happened was that when um, they did the first translation, which and the translation in both cases has been done by the same man, John Wood, Woodsworth, the original books had these wonderful little pictures of Anastasia and nature, and um, I believe that some of them were actually coming from some of the artwork that was being presented based on people's experience with the first book. But there was a, not so much in Russia, but as it began to be translated into other languages, people were being offended by those pictures. They couldn't get beyond the the cover, so to speak. So at the same time, they went back through, John Wordsworth and and, and, uh, another man that was helping him, went back and looked at the translation again. And they did make certain changes, I couldn't tell you what, uh, to the second volume. But the second volume is also got just a black cover, and each of the books has a different picture on it. But it's a picture of a flower or a, a hummingbird or a butterfly. It's not anything provocative, you know. Um, what, everybody was complaining about the cross? I don't know what he goes through, you know, explaining some of the complaints that were leveled against them based on the uh, I don't even remember where I was. I was reading that, I think, on the website. So there's two different websites. There's the ringingcedars.com, which is the website that I bought the second edition. And the reason I bought it was simply because if they had made some kind of a translation correction, um, I sort of said, let me, let me see what that's about. Um, the most, okay, then there's another one, another website that was the first one I was introduced to and the one that most people know as being, you know, the affiliated website with the Ringy Cedars because it says the official website. And that is ringingcedarsofrussia.org. Now, interestingly enough, when, um, I went over to both of them. I, I was completely comfortable with both websites, but I really didn't know. I mean, they both have Vladimir in there, and 
I don't know who's who or what's what. But then in this particular book, the third one, when I checked out, you know, the front of it, I check out the front of these things, and it says, um, Ringing Cedars Press is not affiliated with, does not endorse, and assumes no responsibility for any individuals, entities, or groups who claim to be manufacturing or marketing products or services referred to in this book or who otherwise claim to be acting in accordance with any of the information or philosophy set forth herein. And that was new. I didn't see that in the first and second. It might have been there, but I didn't see it. Um, so I found that kind of like, hmm, interesting, you know. Uh, but I did, I did want to clarify that because it was some kind of, it confused me as to what was happening. So apparently the .org people, you can get the the cedar nuts and uh, pendants and a lot of other things. And I really, I think that the the uh, other one, the .com one, is uh, specifically for the second edition book. And this cat is just making me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Cedar nuts? I'm, I'm, yeah, cedar nuts. I'm trying to hold on to the book. Hold on to my nut, my nuts, right? Hold on to my nuts. I don't have any nuts. Hold on to the notes. And the cat is crawling all over me. I mean, it was getting a little bit much. Um, so, yeah, so I just wanted to uh, clarify if you're seeing two different, look like two different volumes or two different books. It's it's really two series of books. And, um so there. Um, what else did Fulford say? Because we can talk about Anastasia based on what Fulford said. Um, uh, it's interesting that he, he makes mention of President Kennedy here on this um, on this issue of the gold after he says that part where these guys, the Citibank guy and the and Joseph Donovan, you know, left empty-handed. Um, he then follows with the White Dragon Society sources add the Sultan of Johor, West Malaysia, is involved in an attempt to extort the gold from Jakarta. He is claiming that the gold belongs to his royal family and this gives him the right to take it back from Indonesia, where it has been stored for the past 70 years or so. This allegation by the Sultan of Johor would mean that this could be part of the collateralized gold accounts in which the royal families of Asia deposited their gold in Indonesia for safekeeping, uh, and Sokarno was mandated as M1. Sokarno, as well as U.S. President John F. Kennedy, were killed by the Kazarians in order to end their efforts to use this gold for the planet. In parentheses, we assume our readers know the history of this. Close parentheses. Now the depositors of the gold are getting their revenge. The, the Indonesian uh, White Dragon Society sources add that, I have a strong feeling that Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak is somehow involved in this as he is a member of the Khazarian Mafia. Then he goes on to say that the Khazarians are still setting off terrorist attacks in London, the Philippines, Indonesia and elsewhere around the world in order to extort the gold, but they are being systematically isolated. And then he goes on to say the Bilderberg meeting of top Kazarian mafia servants has, has just ended on June 4th, 
was a meeting of losers in the battle for the planet Earth. At this first meeting, since the top Khazarian honcho David Rockefeller died, Rockefeller bagman Henry Kissinger continued his effort to become the new secret ruler of the planet Earth. However, without gold and without Rockefeller behind him, Kissinger is just an old airbag. Shouldn't, uh, shouldn't, shouldn't Kissinger be dead by now? <laughs> it's amazing what they do with this cloning, the, you know, cloning android, I don't know, cyborg technology. They just, it's like the Energizer Bunny. They just keep going. <laughs> I think this guy was an old guy when I first met him, which was probably 40 years ago. Um, this guy. I mean, I seriously, I've wondered about, like, what, he's still alive, you know, and still mucking around? Oh, my goodness. Um, back to the miners. What I think Anastasia would say, based on what um, I've read in, in, in the three books now, is that the reason that there was not an outlash of the, of the dark side matrix against them is the state of being that we're in now. If these miners, not knowing exactly what we know, I mean, let's assume that they're fairly isolated, that they're reacting to a, a situation that is very local to them, they probably couldn't even imagine that by saying no to this company and get the hell out of our, our territory, that they were probably putting themselves in absolutely critical danger because they didn't know of what we know about, you know, how powerful the dark side is and how they all work together. So this company was backed by militia, paid militia, that never were sent in. And I think that that is another indicator of the fact that in their reality, that didn't even enter into it. And because they were so focused on what they were doing, and if Anastasia is correct, and that the energy of change is already overtaking the planet and the people, and the people are intensifying the, the takeover from the powers that were to the people that own it, which is every single one of us, um, that it was the mindset of those miners that they kind of built a bubble of reality around them that did not allow the dark side to even respond. I mean, it's getting to the point that I think that things are happening that the dark side can't even see because they're being blinded to it. I think they don't know how 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 deep it is because I don't think that they know how many pockets of reality have already shifted. Um, the old their old tools don't work anymore. You know that constant fear. Well, people people are rebelling against it. In the past, everybody would you know keep your head down low, don't say anything, don't complain, because that way you're you're safe. You know nobody's going to kill you if you. Shut the hell up. It's not working anymore. <laughs> People are not shutting up. They're, 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 are they afraid? I'm sure they are. Many people are afraid, but are they caring? No. Because they're, they're sick of it. And so w w even with fear on their heads, they're still saying something about it or doing something about it or bringing it to the attention of others that can do something about it. 
it's not working anymore, all the threatening and all the fear-mongering. Sorry, I'm still juggling cat, books, and now glasses, because <laughs> I want to read something that um, is in the book. It's TV, so we can see this stuff. I know, I know. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, this is something that was in the second, the end of the second book. The last time we had a show on this, I, I had not finished it. And I, I just started giggling when she started to talk about this. Um, there, well, he, okay. The, the statement that gets him into this is that she says, people's consciousness today is too bound up with the programs of the technocratic world. They are becoming biological robots. Don't you love it? Biological robots. What kind of biological robots, he asks. The technocratic world is structured in such a way that man keeps on inventing all sorts of mechanical devices and social orders supposedly to make his life easier. But in fact, any saving of labor is an illusion. Man himself is becoming a robot of the technocratic world. He never has enough time to contemplate the essence of being or listen to what another is saying and no time either to reflect on his own destiny. He is literally a programmed robot. Here you are seeing everything with your own eyes and hearing it with your own ears and you still find it hard to believe. And then he goes into, you know, he wants to believe her but he also feels like he doesn't want to just believe her and not have an argument, you know, try to argue away from it. Um, and she says, there are different kinds of belief, Vladimir. It often happens that a man will hold his hands on the Koran or the Bible or another book containing the wisdom of the ages and say that he believes and even try to teach others, whereas, in fact, he is simply attempting, as it were, to make a deal with God. Look here, I believe in you. Remember that in case anything happens. <laughs> uh, and I just love that. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. Now he says, what then is belief or faith? How should it be expressed? In one way, one, in one's way of life, in one's perception of the world, in the understanding of one's essence and designated purpose, in one's corresponding behavior and relationship to the environment, in one's thinking. So just believing is not enough. Just believing is not enough. Imagine an army, all the soldiers down to the last one, believe in their commander, but they do not go into battle. They have such faith in him that they trust that he will win in any case. So the soldiers sit back and watch their commander goes up alone against the enemy forces, they sit there in a state of frenzy and call out, go, 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 we believe in you, we know you can do it. <laughs> I mean, she does, she throws out uh, images into the mix that you just have to love, you know. I mean, she goes into, let's see, where is that, 19? Um, yeah, so... Um, there are many people living in this city who call themselves believers, People of many different denominations. Some of them actively engage in proselytizing. What faith do they proselytize? With their attitude to the surroundings they have been and still are violating the very commandments contained in their sacred books. 
In the Bible, it says, for instance, love thy neighbor as yourself. And then she goes on to, but you got to know your neighbor first. Exactly. <laughs> and you don't even go out and, and, and you know, talk to each other. Um, she goes into the pyramids and how they keep looking at the pyramids as something 3D structured and don't understand the significance of it from a energetic, uh, metaphysical, quantum s- standpoint. And just as soon as she gets into that, she went into the history, the real history. She says, Vladimir, way back in ancient times, people living on the earth had the capacity to use wisdom and intelligence far surpassing the abilities of modern man. People at the time of the Earth's pristine origins enjoyed access to all the information in the entire database of the universe. This is information filling the universe was created by the great intelligence or God with contributions both from him and from people themselves, their thoughts. It is so subserb, so superb that it is capable of answering any question unobtrusively. The answer would appear instantaneously in the subconscious of the man asking the question. He asks, and what did it, and what did it give these people? These people needed no spaceship for traveling to other planets. All they had to do was wish for it, and they could see what was happening there. These people had no television, telephone, or communication wires ensnaring the earth. Not even literacy, since all the information you derive from books, they were able to obtain instantaneously by other means. See, they must have had a, they must have had Google back then. Yeah, and there is a, when what I found really interesting is that uh, when she describes the use how the pyramid was used. Um, by the group, you know, where everybody has to stand around the perimeter of the pyramid and look up and focus their thoughts, their consciousness on the apex of the pyramid. Uh, there's actually no conflict at all with the information in the Law of One material, the the the, the raw material, the Law of One books, uh, because this is one of the things that I've learned from shamanic journeys guides do not answer questions that are not asked. They don't gossip. They don't comment. They don't have opinions. They will give you the answer to the question you're posing to them. So when Don Elkins, when Carla Rukert was in her trance and her body was being used by Ra to verbalize the answers to the questions, he his whole focus of his questioning was the inside of the pyramid. How was it used? You know, what are the different areas inside? He never questioned the outside use of the pyramids. So there is no conflict because here uh, Anastasia is presenting a piece of information that most investigators have totally, you know, missed because they, didn't, they were not investigating. She's showing how the exterior of the pyramid was used to do this accessing. Also, one of the things that uh, there's a there's a great synchronicity between something that she says um, when she talks about 10,000 years ago, more and more people were being born like handicapped. They had, they had lost their connection to intelligent infinity, as they say in the in the Law of One books. They say that all, all living beings 
animals, plants, the cells in your body, they have open contact, open connection to intelligent infinity, but human, the human consciousness is clouded by the veil. In the book Holy Science by Sri Yukteswar, the guru to Paramhansa Yogananda, he speaks of the Yugas, he speaks of the 25,000 year cycle. Um, I found it very interesting because um, in that book he explains quite simply how the sun actually has a sister star and it rotates around that other star and it takes 25,000 years in, in that rotation. I remember in the 70s uh, this uh, astrophysicist came forward with this information that they had uh, plotted and calculated the location of this companion star and they called it, uh, they dubbed it Nemesis. And then overnight, the entire, his entire information, all of it disappeared. And I'm thinking, why would anybody be interested in clouding this or hiding this? And the only, the obvious answer is, you know, to herd, like a herd of cattle, you know, to herd human consciousness, I guess, in a specific direction. In any case, what Sri Yotaswar says in his book is that in this 25,000 year cycle, it causes the solar system to move closer and then farther away from the galactic center. So as the solar system is moving in a direction closer to the galactic center, human consciousness begins to accelerate and grow and expand. And that's why they, the yugas are labeled the Kali Yuga, the Dark Age, like the Middle Ages, you know, where human consciousness is unable to grasp even the most basic things. Then Dwapara Yuga, where we are right now, which is, they call it the electric age, when man begins to wake up to forces such as electricity and magnetism. This age is supposed to last 2,400 years. Right now, what is this, uh, 2017? This is uh, the 317th year of, no, I'm wrong, 417th year of Dwapara Yuga since it began. It's been 417 years since it began. It will last 2,400 years. After this comes the mental age that they refer to as Treta Yuga, where a man becomes conscious and aware of his mental capacities and capabilities and lives life, you know, more or less free of technology because they are fully, you know, telepathy is a commonplace thing. Telekinesis is a commonplace thing. That age lasts... 3,600 years, and then the final age, as the solar system gets to the closest point, closer to the point, um, what is it, perihelion, the nearest, the, the point nearest to the galactic center, that's called Satya Yuga, the age of illumination, which is a golden age, where people live in that state of spiritual awareness. So you are a soul, and you're awake to the fact that you're a soul and a spirit, and you're awake inside your body. It's like living a life where you, let's say, I don't know, you're five years old and you can go into samadhi at will. That's how far advanced your consciousness is. So when she talks about 10,000 years ago, she's literally describing the descending part of the curve as it goes down through Treta Yuga into the Para Yuga, where human consciousness begins to degrade and degrade and get darker and darker and darker. So people started being born with uh, asleep or totally oblivious to their powers. 
and that's that's why she explains that the creation of those dolmens. Uh, so those people that have been born with all their consciousness and awareness of their powers completely awake in them, sacrifice themselves to give the survivors an access port, is an access point into universal wisdom, so that if whatever questions they had, they would go to the dolmen and consult. And when she describes the process of how the, the person would die in the dolmen into perpetual meditation, into perpetual cosmic... Well, 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 let's just stop here for a second, because... What, 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 what he's talking about is dolmens are these little structures that are all over, actually, Europe, but they're also around Russia, and they're talking specifically about the ones in Russia. And I found it fascinating because what they were saying is, is like he's about to tell you, is that people would – they kept replying it to a live death. They would go in there in order to die. It was like suicide, but it was suicide in a very peculiar way. So I just wanted to say that yep. these small little structures, but they're all over the place. And what Anastasia was explaining is that they uh, people don't understand what they are and that they're being uh, desecrated and destroyed. And we're losing a tremendous amount of knowledge because of this. Go on. I'm sorry. I just I, want to oh, it's wonderful to see that. Because McGray wrote the book, the entire attitude regarding dolmens uh, is making a huge turnaround. You, you read the part where the, all the ladies of that town got together and they went and did a ceremony at one of the dolmens. You remember that part? Oh, yes. There's a picture, actually. That was the other thing. In the new volume, there are pictures. Oh. And there, there was a picture of these women outside of the dolmen of her foregrandmother. Yeah, very ancient. I don't. I don't know how. You know, they didn't. Because I, I went back to look, but she just says, "My ancient fore grandmother." Yeah, and the the purpose of the dolmen is exactly like this. This must have been what that part of the world, the civilization, that part of the world, the solution that they devised, so as not to leave the survivors of the Dark Ages without access to you know, universal wisdom. So they, they came up with this solution. When you look at the cultures in the Americas, they were they too were aware. In fact, that's, it's also an issue discussed in the book, The Holy Science by Sri Yogteswar, that the ancient kings of India knew when this thing was happening, the descending ages, and they, the human consciousness was going to drop like a rock in a pond. So he actually quotes there the name and location of an Indian king, who um, picked up his entire court and they went to live in these specially devised uh, underground shelters in the mountains because they didn't want to be around <laughs> for for a dark humanity. And he says that's why nobody, whoever stayed around, didn't know about the counting of the yugas. If you talk to somebody in India today, especially if you talk to a sannyasi, they still believe that we are smack in the middle of Kali Yuga. I mean, they, they think that Kali Yuga lasts some some crazy number, like 305,000 years, because nobody was left behind who knew how to do the date counts. All the, all the sages and all the wise men, everybody left with the king. And when, so these people in this part of the world devised the dolmen. 
as a way to be able to preserve a door into cosmic intelligence, cosmic wisdom, and people give people something to access. You know, who do we consult when we have a problem and we need to heal or we have a drought and we need uh, answers to our lives? But in the Americas, if you read uh, uh, Drumbala Melchizedek's explanations of the crystal skulls in his book, The Serpent of Light, it's it's almost exactly the same purpose. They they the the same way that the dolmen became the how the 3D house or material level uh, habitat for the soul of this person who sacrificed themselves. Okay, let me let me let me just break in here again because the concept was that the person would die inside this. Correct. But would would die in a state of meditation, and that they were giving up their eternal right to be reincarnated. That their soul was sort of trapped in this um, place and space, so that their wisdom would be preserved, kind of in stone. And people would come and ask their questions, and if they had an open heart, then they could connect with the energy of this individual who had specific information to pass on. Yep. So that and, was the reason. And the crystal skulls are almost exactly the same purpose. They're living libraries. The one the one that he was he he traveled when he went to the peak to the Yucatan Peninsula with his group um the uh, the one that he was carrying around actually had three souls in it. It had the souls of an ancient medicine woman I believe and two souls of two young people a male and a female and these were people that from the moment that they were babies they grew up with the awareness that that was their purpose in life to be transferred into the crystal skull when their time came so they went into this very convoluted uh, ceremony uh, assisted by certain chemical substances and they consciously put their soul essence in the crystal skull. So you can consult the skull like uh, like a living library. And, and all of this, I believe, is born from this knowledge that they have. You know, the solar system is moving away from the galactic center, and consciousness is dropping, and it's dropping fast, and we have to do something to preserve what little we have. Can you go back through those ages and kind of like, where are we now? We right. said 400 years into. All right, let's just talk about stage one, two, and three. One being the the dumbest, and then you know whatever being Kali the Kali Yuga. If you look at a circle, a third circle is 360 degrees. The ages you have, and you and you, if you take the circle and you divide it in two, where you have two halves on the on the right hand side. You have the descending circle because if you're if you're moving in the direction of the clockwise, the half on the right side you're going down. So there's four ages going down, and then there's four ages going up. So as you go down, the last age as you're moving away from the galactic center is Kali Yuga, the age of darkness, destruction, ignorance, and it's 600 years long. But it's 600 years descending and then 600 years ascending. So if you count it all together, it's 1,200 years of darkness. And if you look at the historical records, it's interesting to note that the civilization of the world 
at the valley of the wave or at the peak of darkness was the Roman Empire. <laughs> I mean, can you think of lower, uh, lowest kind of when people lived in a state of, you know, almost continual debauchery and, uh, and vices and human life was practically worthless? I mean, it wasn't that bad all the time. I mean, it got that bad, but there was good part of it. <laughs> well, in in every age, you know, there's always somebody that's holding on to to the light, but they are the least in numbers, and they're the most persecuted of all, because those that are on the drivers, you know, sitting behind the drivers, seat, they don't they don't want to give up that that uh, the the driver's seat, so. If you're, if you're not playing with us, then you're a problem. We have to get rid of you. And that's why you have, you know, all the, all the ways men, you know, they have to hide in their towers and caves and whatnot because otherwise they don't live very long. <laughs> so, uh, after, after that ascending 600 years begins the age of the Opara Yuga and based on his, he gives in the book his calculation uh, when he wrote the book, what year was this? It was, uh, 1896. So it was 200, it was the 296th year of the Parayuga based on his calculation, astronomical calculations. So if you do the math, let's see. Yeah, it's 421. That's, wait, guys. 400. We are living right now in the 417th year of the electric age, the Para Yuga. So we're not even halfway through. This age is, is uh, 2,400 years long. And so it's supposedly the lowest age, the, the age of kind of no. like... Your, this is the electric age. This is where human consciousness has increased to a level that it's able to grasp and use, maybe not understand at, at a complete level, but at least be able to grasp and use electrical forces, uh, magnetic forces. It's that it is what it is, the time of technology, which interestingly to note is not the peak of any civilization. You know, big technological use, computers, airplanes, all that stuff. It doesn't mean you're advanced. It means that you're you're a nice monkey that knows how to use tools. <laughs> because let's face it, what is Anastasia showing us in real life terms? When you're evolved to the point where you are awake to cosmic consciousness or the intelligence of the universe, why do you need technology at all? Well, one of the funniest parts of the book were, were when he was—he had brought his child some toys, and <laughs> she's saying, "Like, what? Think back in your own life. You know, you get this toy, and you're looking at it, and it—you it, know—it doesn't smell like anything real. It doesn't taste like anything real. It may make a noise or do some weird thing, but what is it, and what is it good for? Yeah, as a child." You know, we may know that, well, that's like a truck and you're going to play with it because it's like a truck, but the child doesn't know what this thing is. 
it was it was it was very well done that concept of what kind of toys do you give your kids and meanwhile she's saying look at the look at our baby who's playing with a bug and what what connectedness she, he is making with the universe and that takes him into asking about the concept of spirit and we'll get into that in the next hour we are at the uh, top of the hour Colleen do you have a a, a tune you're going to give us and you are back Okie dokie. And I'm trying to get this thing. <laughs> okay, just a second here. Okay, right there. All right. Um, hi, everybody. You're listening to the Cosmic Reality Radio Show. My name is Nancy Hopkins. With me is Walt Silver. Producing is Colleen Kelly from Haggy Shack Radio. And you can find Walt at newparadigmtools.net. That's newparadigmtools.net. Makes energy devices beyond um, what we represent in the store. And he also can fix your computer. Now, I just went, uh, did an upgrade. I didn't do it. They, Windows forced an upgrade on the uh, computer that is the radio computer that most of the time we're operating on. And it completely screwed up. The only program in it <laughs> that is basically not a... Yeah, I mean, we we only have three or four programs in it, and the and the main one is screwed up. Then it started screwing up on its own, only to find out that Windows was trying to do an update of their update. And when they, I finally said, I've got to restart this computer. All of a sudden, Windows is back in com- control of it, and they took it away for at least a half an hour. I stopped watching after that, um, but. Walt is the one who I call on, and he can get into the computer, and he can fix the problems that these updates are going to probably cause you. Colleen, did you have the same situation occur, an update, and then a problem with your your programming? I sure did. Uh, Windows did an update on all three of my machines, not all at the same time, and one machine after the other reset all my sound settings, um, what devices to use for what. Um, Walt helped me fix some of them, and then I fiddled around and got the others fixing, and it also made my editing, uh, audio editing program on one of the machines stop working. Um, I did get that fixed the other day. It took me, like, I don't know, weeks (laughs) to figure it out, but I did. So, in answer to your question, a resounding yes. Oh, maybe I shouldn't have talked about it because for the first time in days, my stream dropped. It's back up, but it might cause people to have to reset. Uh, they're players. Just reset your, reload your page. Um, yeah, so anyway, Walt can uh, help you out, and it'll save you a tremendous amount of agony because Colleen at least knows enough to be able to realize what the situation is. I was just like, oh, my God, what happened? <laughs> Please, somebody help me out here. And most people, uh, you know, I just I just feel for people that don't have somebody like Walt who can actually come in and clear the problems rather rapidly because he keeps seeing the same well I don't know I can't speak for him but it seems like he's he knows what to look for let me put it to you that way the rest of us would be stumbling in the dark with a match he goes in with a 
he turns on the lights. <laughs> so anyway, I just wanted to uh, to get that across that you do have help out there if Windows attacks, and they will eventually attack. They take over your computer and they do all terrible things to it. Anyway, um, okay, so Walt, you want to say anything towards that? Uh, oh, sorry, I thought I was muted. <laughs> Uh, I, that's the only thing I can think of when I looked at your machine is for some inexplicable reason when this update goes in, it resets all, all sound settings because we use, well, you know, our audience knows us that we use a software solution for the radio producing, unlike Colleen who does use a, a hardware audio mixer, we use a software solution. And that update literally wrote the software sound mixer out of the <laughs> out of the system. It had to be completely cleaned out and then reinstalled again from scratch in order to implement the same settings as, as existed before. So I don't know what is it that they're updating that uh, they're writing the machine back to square one. And thank you, Microsoft. I hope there's a special place in hell. Yes. I said that about somebody else, and somebody said to me, oh, I don't. And I said, why not? And they said, because all their friends are going to be there. <laughs> I hope your employees turn into minors, you know. <laughs> Goodness. Okay, so um, Anything else before I go look at my notes that I just spilt the coffee on when the cat got down on my lap? <laughs> okay, so we got nuts, coffee, cat. What else? For a basketball, you? Um. Oh. <laughs> okay, so let's go to um, page 34 because that's where we ended the, the last. Uh, I got the right book. No, I don't. When last we left our heroes. When, yes, we were at page 30. And now we're going to page 34. Because that's where they got into the discussion about spirit. Anastasia, please explain what you mean by someone's spirit. What does it consist of? It consists of all the unseen elements in a man, including certain passions and sensations acquired during the period of existence in the flesh. Does the spirit possess an energy analogous to any of the energies we know of? That's correct. It is an energy complex consisting of a multitude of different energies. After the end of a human individual's fleshly existence... Certain of these complexes break up into square separate energies, which are which are subsequently used in plant and animal aggregates, as well as an essential natural phenomena. That really confused me. I, I, at first, I was going like, "Okay, now this makes sense because of a show I did on consciousness," and it was. And we've talked about this before, Walt. The idea that your consciousness that goes into making your, let's say, record your experiences is really one of aha moments where 
you know, something out of the ordinary makes you stop and think about what you're thinking about. And you get this, oh, aha moment. Those aha moments are like signatures of your own conscious development that coalesce. And this was based on work done by a quantum physicist and a, a, another man who was an anesthesiologist. And he got into the concept of consciousness and spirit and soul because his job was to basically put the human body in a state of death. And so he's like, I've got this body in a state of death, so where's this consciousness? And that and it was a fascinating um, discussion to listen to him and, and Chopra on that very subject. Um, but, again, they came down to the belief system that these aha moments, these, oh, I got it, you know, um, really kind of like come together and create a consciousness that that can exist kind of outside of the body and they weren't willing to say it was spirit or soul or any of this but they did talk about it that way so when I was listening to when I was listening when I was reading this first part that's kind of what I thought she was talking about but then she got into this concept of energies breaking off and and being used by plant and animal aggregates did you have any feeling about this particular paragraph? It's not, uh, it wasn't strange to me at all because first off, when you, when you think about those aha moments, to me, it's, to me, it's the other way around. It's not consciousness waking up, it's you punching holes into the veil because if the veil did not exist, you would be living in a state of aha moments because you would have access to all, all your knowledge, all your knowing. Is that stupid veil that doesn't let us see, that doesn't have, let us access consciously all our dimensions. So every time we get to punch a little hole in it, oh, 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 that's how it's done. Oh, aha, uh-huh, yeah, that, now I get it. <laughs> but uh, I remember when I read that part of the book, um, Dr. Costa, when he, when he, uh, the one who taught the, the transpersonal hypnotherapy technique, the 15 step process, um, he thought it was an exception at first when he first encountered it, but then as the, as the years progressed and he treated more and more people, uh, he found he found that uh, especially when he was doing hypnotherapy on someone who was very ill or someone who has spent many years in some state of chronic pain or they can't walk or some condition that they have to live with day after day after day when he would do the transpersonal hypnotherapy on them so that the pattern body could be released from the physical and be taken into the fourth dimension for healing by the guides, uh, the first time it happened to him was a, a man, an elder man, and all of a sudden he started uh, acting like, a, you know, when a little kid goes on a roller coaster ride, he was going, yay, and he... He's thinking, what is the, what's going on with this guy? So he starts addressing, you know, engaging him to get him to talk. And it turned out that for a limited amount of time, instead of taking his pattern body into fourth dimension to meet with his guides, he was inside the body of a dolphin. And then Dr. Costa explains that what happens is 
they are very significant on this planet because dolphins represent like complete joy and freedom. That's their life, joy and freedom. So he says many times people, especially people that have been living these kinds of lives where you're practically buried alive because your body doesn't work or it's in a constant state of pain and you just, you know, you don't want to commit suicide, but you just wish some of this crap would end when they are given this chance to move the pattern body out of the body, they go into dolphins or a, or a bird or some creature that represents, you know, joy and freedom and happiness. And he also found in his, uh, in his work is that even people that have died, that have passed on after a long illness, the same, the same series of conditions have to be met where they've had, the last 10 years of their life, they lived in a wheelchair or they had to be hooked up to life support, you know, nothing that any sane person would call any quality of life. When they die, before they move on to a higher dimension, they will spend time in the body of a wild animal because they want to experience that joy again of being able to move, being able to swim, being able to run, you know, like inside a horse, being able to fly. So that they, when they leave this world, they don't have to leave with this burden or all this trauma that you have to live with the last 10 years of your life. That's really significant because what you're saying there is that once they die and they no longer have the veil, they know where to take one last dive into 3D by merging into the <laughs> physical environment of an, a wild animal in order to feel that absolute positive euphoric you know the the only way that I can even give words to this is that I'm not somebody that likes to run to me it's like oh my god we gotta run what are you talking about you know I've just never (laughs) done this and I was in the army and they would make us get up at some ungodly the sun wasn't even up to go out and run and to me, this was absolute torture. I'm like, oh, my heavens, what is this all about? I thought, oh, I'm not going to survive this. So, But what ha- was happening, of course, was that I was being forced to run, and so I was getting into physical, physically getting into, into shape, even though, you know, I mean, that <laughs> I would have kicked in. Oh, no, I don't want to do this. But what happened was that one – oh, it, it – there was a, there was a strange situation that occurred during an exercise, and a fire started. And because of the fire and people trying to move quickly uh, in, in, in the dark of night, uh, one of the people that was with me uh, actually fell and broke her leg. And I had seen military people, and I believed it was you know the local guys screwing around with the girls, this girls' school. Um, and shot off a um, uh, like a a flare, a mine, something. Something went off, and I saw it, and that's what caused the fire. But when I tried to report this, nobody wanted to listen to me because they didn't want to confront the fact that you know this could have been a very dangerous situation, and who were those people out there? And they basically, you know, were not listening to me. So I decided because I hate it when people don't listen to me. I decided I was going to go out there and find whatever it was I saw. And I started running in the woods. And I, I don't know what happened. It was like this, this state that I got into when I was running where I wasn't touching the ground. 
it was like I, I suddenly understood why people might run and get that euphoric thing. But it was a, a feeling of being absolutely in control of my body. Uh, granted, it was the only time in my life I ever got this feeling. But I watch animals, the cats, the dog, you know, and you see them running in just such a precision way with such abandon, not even considering, you know, the the effort it's taking to do that. So I can only imagine, you know, that those people that, that get the veil taken away and they're still close enough to, to experience that one feeling again it's an amazing feeling uh, i can i can attest that that for once one time in my life i did did feel that and i did feel i did find this flare that they shot and i brought it back and they looked at it and they said huh and they threw it in the trash and i said nope that's my souvenir if that's the way you're going to be and i picked it out of the trash and i have it today because <laughs> it reminds me of that running that one time where I just felt like, Walt, I felt like if I kept running hard enough, I could go to the top of the trees. It was the most exhilarating thing I've ever experienced. Well, if you ever read uh, interviews by uh, professional athletes, athletes that are sincere in their life choice, people that do athletics, not because they want to earn medals or win tons of money or get tons of women or be famous or appear, you know, people that do it because this is truly their passion. When they get into that rhythm, when they get into that zone, as they call it, uh, it goes beyond mental. It's like a state of consciousness where it's almost like a running, whatever it is that they're doing, swimming or running or jumping, it's like a running meditation. They're not in a state of, they're not reasoning They're not in a state of reasoning. They're in a state of pure experience. There is no need to reason because you, you are, you are that. You and the experience are becoming one thing. So there's no need to reason or analyze anything. You're just doing it. And I, any, I think, I think that's Anastasia's message. Yeah. You know, that, they report that. They, they love doing what they do because they go into this other space of consciousness that's just theirs. Well, we should talk about the school children. You remember when he goes to the school? Oh, yeah. That was oh, my sure. It's that stuff. Being being a child where your nature is to be mobile and being forced to sit and not unmoving for 45 minutes or however long the class is, it's, it's, it's spiritual torture. He, he says it very well toward the end. To think the children for decades are subjected to spiritual torture because that's what school is. I mean, when I, the other day we were discussing with my mom, um, for example, grammar school, uh, in Argentina. One of the things they teach you in, in school in, in grammar, grammar school in Argentina, primary school is, for example, the revolution of 1810, where Supposedly, I'm going to use air quotes here, so you people in the audience, imagine lots of air quotes in, <laughs> in this stuff. Supposedly, in 1810, when people were at the government building banging on the door because they, they were doing a closed session, nobody knew what the hell was going on behind closed doors, so the people are yelling and screaming, we want to know what the heck is going on. That was the 
scream of liberty. You know, this would be the beginning of the end of the slavery of being, you know, tied to the Spanish crown. So the truth of the matter, it was all fake because the, all the rich guys and the military guys on the, on the priests, they got together behind closed doors and they said, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make a provisional government to rule the colonies until the king of Spain is free because he had been captured by Napoleon. That's it. They didn't want any freedom. They just said, okay, you know, somebody's got to run the, the store because mom is on vacation with dad. So somebody's got to mind the store until they come back. That's exactly what that was. So to this day, children are being taught a gigantic steaming pile of lies in school. And one of the things they make you do, uh, school is not inexpensive. In a country like Argentina where prices go up daily, sending a child to school is a very expensive proposition. I mean, here, I couldn't believe it in, in, in New York when I went to junior high school and then high school. The school gave me the textbooks to study. Obviously, you know, you give them back at the end of your term, but you're giving me the textbooks to study. In Argentina, you have to, you have to mortgage your house to buy the kid, you know, the books. So one of the, you know, to give you this image of how expensive it is to send your child to school, the teacher makes the child do sh these nonsensical things like, um, uh, because this is 1810, they can memorate the elements of that era. For example, they had uh, oxen-drawn carts, and you had street vendors that sold, this guy sold candles, and this guy sold I don't know what, and there would be the, you know, in the ancient times, you would have this guy with a lantern go around the town uh, yelling the time of day. <laughs> Remember that? The town crier. That that kind of stuff. And Well, Paul, I don't remember it. Well, you were there. <laughs> In another life, but you were there. Maybe you I was the crier. You were, you were throwing dung at the crier every time he turned around. He didn't know who was there. Uh, and I remember one time that she wanted the kids to make uh, a scale model of the oxen-drawn cart to bring to class, you know, class assignment. And she, when I, I just inquired about what the materials would cost, and my mother was going to cut my head off if I even attempted to ask for money to buy this. And I remember only one kid in class because his, I think his father was a doctor or an engineer or something. He had the money and the parents put together this little stupid thing. It must have cost him a fortune to make the scale model, you know, oxen drawn cart. And I, and I look back on all this crap and it's like, what did it teach us as a forming, growing up human being that's supposed to be a useful citizen of any nation? What, what is this giving me? Nothing at all. And it's just, it's just uh, uh, like we've spoken before in other shows. Argentina, it's a Nazi country. You know, it doesn't pay to deny it. And you do not get graded in school for how well you did on your tests. You get graded on for on how well you follow orders. So it is. They may not say it outright, but the spirit of the schooling there, especially public schooling, it's. Nazi down to the bone. That's what you get. You don't get graded for, oh my God, I got a, I had a 
that they don't do 100% on your on your grades. It's from zero to 10. Uh, oh, I got 10 on all my math. They don't care. Were you obedient to the teacher? Did you do everything you were told to do? Yes. Oh, then you're a great student. You're going to be a great citizen, you know, when you grow up. <laughs> you know, it was it was when she was ex- re- reiterating what the things that he didn't remember about being a child, yeah. and um, all the, uh, the the different things that we do to essentially make a child conform to a reality that doesn't even make sense. Yeah. But when they just started discussing the concept of a child being forced to sit for 40 minutes or 45 minutes God. in the same chair. I actually started to get, I was physically responding to the image that it was bringing up in my mind. And I'm, I'm thinking back and I'm going like, my God, that was torture. And I had never, I had never really addressed that, that, you know, we were, Every day we would go out and we'd play outside and we'd play all day and we'd play hard. And then suddenly, one day in September, we're brought to this building and we're told, now you've got to sit still for the rest of the day. It was... um, This is really torture. I I was born in 59, so I I went to grammar school in the early 60s and I just... (laughs) For, for those people that don't let children watch horror films before going to bed because it's going to give them nightmares, I didn't need to have, watch horror films. All I had to do was go to school because <clears throat> in those days, the teacher had these long uh, wooden pointers to point at the blackboard. They looked like uh, pool cues. If not, they had these uh, wooden yardsticks, you know, like, like a measuring ruler made of wood. And uh, if any child was disobedient or if you, or they, or they caught you fidgeting and you're not sitting and moving on your thing, the teacher would force the child to put their hands on the bench, calm down, and then she, was, she would uh, bang on your hands with a pool cue or the yardstick. So your hands would end up being tomato red and the child would be crying, you know, a river. And they just... They look in another direction. They, they don't care that you're crying your eyes out and your your clothing is getting wet from all your crying. All that matters is that they deliver the, the proper, you know, training. That was the punishment for not sitting still when you were being told to sit still. So I don't know if you ever witnessed any of that shit. No, I never, we never, I never saw that kind of thing happen anywhere in my school. But, you know, we were never that bad. <laughs> <laughs> You Argentinian kids must have been really bad. We would never, you know, be that bad. That um, was that was commonplace. And my mother's time was even worse because they the school forced you to be right-handed. So if you were naturally left-handed, they would take rope and they would tie your hand behind your back. So that's 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 a Nazi country. I'm sorry. I don't know what else to label it. <laughs> Well, like I say, as she goes through and she analyzes, because he 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 got he gets into a discussion in a couple of different places regarding system, and he's trying to force her to give him some kind of a system for child rearing because the readers are asking for this information, 
and she's very well she she really can't do it because she keeps going back to how systems are so destructive and the discussion she has which was primarily about Russia um the Russian environment but how every every control mechanism puts in a system and this is what it's supposed to be oh well oh a new controls in well then that system is the old system we don't do that anymore so we're going to do this and that you've got all these systems but they're all none of them are doing any good for anybody well we're going back to what this is exactly exactly what Wilhelm Reich said if you want to kill the spirit of anything organize it exactly and it's so like she, an elephant and squeezing it into a thimble right She's saying you can't, these systems are not, this is what the problem is, the system itself. So then she, um, she tells Vladimir that in fact, um, he needs to, well, I somehow or another, he doesn't, he actually doesn't just explain how he gets there, but she's explaining how the non-system is the best way to bring up kids. And he says, and you know what? She's right. I saw it. And then he goes into a discussion about the school system in Russia that was put together by Mikhail Petrovich Shitinin, S-H-E-C. Yep. Yep. When he went to the... Yeah, that was an amazing. And she was, you remember, he ended up going there because he insisted he wanted, because he insisted that he wanted to see manifestations of the changes because she kept insisting it's already started. The changes have already started. You don't have to wait for, she says, but, you know, they're very, it's like the young shoots of a plant. I mean, if you're not cautious or careful, you could trample on the plant and then it'll never come, it'll never become an adult plant. And she was, she was cautioning him. uh, And it was because of her that he went to visit the school. But then you see further, as you read on the story, Somebody must have felt threatened that they they shot at this uh, this man, the the one who founded the school, and they're not hurting anything or anybody. It's just that the children are being allowed to learn naturally. Nobody is pumping anything into their heads, and and isn't it interesting how they they sh- they have like a collective consciousness type of education where they share with each other, so nobody gets left behind. Everybody's studying equally because the guys who have studied something and mastered it, then they go and they share it with the ones that are busy working and can't study that much. So at the end of the day, everybody's on the same level, on the same page, like a hive mind type thing, but nobody's being forced to do anything. You know, if you want to leave the room, leave the room. If you want to come back, come back. It's, uh, and the, and the other super interesting thing is their use of language. They were awake and conscious and aware of how they were using words instead of wasting energy on, on trivial, nonsensical words. They were being conscious of the energy behind words, purpose, meaning, significance, the emotional charge behind the word. And that, that was to, to read that a school is doing this. That's, amazing because that's exactly that's one of the, those human powers that we've lost the power of word well i can't find the uh the the where they talk about it but when because what, what uh, let me tell you more about the school itself 
the school's children in there, they don't have any teachers. They, uh, gosh, it's, she says it so much better than I do or he does at this point. But they, the kids get together and they have actually built the buildings. They're the ones that decide what the architecture is going to be, how they're going to be decorated, what their purpose is for. And they, and he was questioning um, them because remember this is Vladimir actually interacting with the children, and he was questioning them on okay, how do you go about this? Do you have a leader? And it was like, well, no, not really, because what happens is that we all kind of like they meditate on what they think personally it all should be, and this meditation comes together in a formulated thought form that they then all sort of understand. It's like a, a group manifestation. So then they go about discussing how do we get to this point? How do we make this real? And as they do their work, and they've got pictures in the new volumes that show you the inside. These buildings are beautiful. And every stone is being laid by a child. They're building them themselves. And there's a, you know, there's a, they didn't give exactly the age uh, range, but, you know, there's some older ones because they also show, now these kids, these kids are, are into martial arts. There's pictures of them doing a martial arts exhibition. They uh, have all the arts and crafts and stuff. I mean, but also the, the high culture things are, are, are taught, taught by themselves. They get together and they, work at learning together it's phenomenal yeah and it's the uh, and the beauty of it is as uh, Vladimir points out in the book that it's young minds that they haven't been programmed they haven't been conditioned they're as pure as can be uh, this type of uh, communal meditation to handle the activities of the day uh, is kind of parallels what happened in the early years of the Finhorn Commune in Scotland, when Peter and Eileen, when Peter Caddy was still alive, I don't know if Eileen Caddy is still around, but that's the way that it started. It was a, I know that there were very few children, it was mostly adults, but that's the deal. They would get together every morning, I think it was before uh, breakfast, they would sit in concentric circles and they would meditate. And oftentimes Eileen, she was a channeler. She would get messages from the nature spirits and they would get uh, insight as to how to proceed the rest of the day, what part of the land they should be working on or what part of the land needed their special attention or which part you should leave alone because that's wild, that belongs to the nature spirits. And that's how it, it wasn't an intellectual exercise they were being guided, you know, by their intuition, by their meditation. And that uh, that was very, very effective many, for many, many years. I don't know if that's still the culture there. Um, I know that somebody that I knew, a Canadian gentleman, went there, and he was sorely disappointed that it's not like that at all. It's not like he read the book, <laughs> but it's now a new age thing, so... It's not like in the book, but here in this case, there's no grown-ups to tell them this is wrong or that's right or you should do it this way. You should. They're getting it from their own insight, from their own intuition, 
from their own connection to the universe, they're getting what they need to know. Unless yeah, they have, they have teachers there that kind of like set the scene. Yeah. But it's really the interaction of the children working off of their intuition and connecting to that all-knowing source of information mm-hmm. that allows them to progress in such an amazing way. And I was just like blown away by this, but not surprised as to what the reason was. Because Vladimir goes and he talks to um, some people that are involved in the Duma, uh, the government aspects of of this area and they flat out said well if we all of a sudden agree that no system is working and that we don't have systems and we should let the children do this then all of the things we've been telling anybody is untrue and we can't allow that to happen yes that's right (laughs) the teachers need to the teachers need to support their shit all the books they published on all the dissertations, on all the college degrees that they have, you know, you're sacrificing humanity for for the vanity of one or the vanity or the, of a very small group. Well, it's a group that wants that, you know, wants to be right. Yeah. And the damn thing is, is that just because you're right doesn't mean you know. <laughs> And that is the problem. If, you know, I mean, and and you've heard me say this, I I don't have to be right, I have to know. And if something came about that said to me, no, everything that you've said for all of your life is BS, and it was, you know, impressive enough for me, I'd be willing to let go of everything I've ever known. If, I'm not not invested in in any one story, I'm invested in finding the truth. And the truth, truth morphs. I mean, the truth is the miners should have been, you know, attacked and put down. And the truth is, is that no, they actually did what they set out to do because they were in charge of the reality. And I think that that's what's happening more and more in more pronounced and more meaningful ways. Yeah. And um, did you? Did you like the part where he's uh, going through the letters with her? And there's a guy who writes that he he wants to leave everything and go live in the taiga with her. And she and she says, "I haven't told anybody to come here. Why would you leave your place? You know. And and what about all? You know, everybody creates dirt. You're going to bring your dirt here. What about cleaning the place that you're leaving behind? And to me, that was very significant because ever since I read. The, the first book where she talks about how her glade was a, a dimension of love, how everything, every plant, every tree, every, everything that existed in that glade was a, a dimension of love created by her parents. And it just keeps expanding and getting stronger with her life and her actions. And I thought, why can't I do that with my house? The house inside, the property outside, all the plants. Well, why can't this become my dimension of love? So that every 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 plant, every animal, every wall in the house, everything is part of an is an expression of my local dimension of love. Why do I need to escape anywhere? You know, exactly, where we, we exactly. take our trip. <laughs> and remember, the title of the third book is the space of love. The space of love, exactly. Space of love. And she, you know, at one point she's explaining to him that 
there is no more powerful force in the universe than love. And the reason that man is so special and second only to God is because they are the ones that can basically bring the love force into existence. And so they are, uh, you know, create, they're the God creators of life. And he says, so wait a minute. You're saying that, that I'm a, a creator kind of God, but I've got all these other creator God. What are we in charge of? Nothing. <laughs> well, no, it's your own space, just like you said. Your own space, make it yours. Like, you know, because you are, because a human being has the ability to be godlike in their own realm, doesn't mean you have to be godlike in everybody's realm, just be godlike in your realm. Exactly. I mean, look at the people that, uh, I like it. It's, uh, it's such a cliche, you know, it's a subject of films and, and books. People that go, they travel to India and they travel to China and they travel because they're looking to find themselves. <laughs> You're looking everywhere except where you should have looked in the first place and what's inside. You're, you're traveling and you're running away because you don't want to see what's inside. So you want something outside to distract you and give you, um, oh, I'm going to follow this thing because you, you never cleaned house. You never addressed yourself. Once you clean your house, you don't want to live anywhere else. It's perfect for you. It's your dimension. It's your space of love. <laughs> well, they brought that out. See, um, it, it, we're telling you, um, sort of, we're discussing the philosophy presented, but the the book has really got a lot of uh, action in it. And to be honest with you, some of it was profoundly upsetting. Um, just because I don't like some of the imaging that was was part of the story. Um, I want to say something else about the book because I think that people that are energy sensitive are going to feel it. In the third volume, when I started reading it, I was like, whoa, something's off here. This energy is not the same energy. It feels different to me. And yet there was the underlying current of no, 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 it's the same. Just, just read. But this upper current thing was like something's different. And I never tweaked on what it was until I get to a point in the book where it is about two-thirds of the way through, where Vladimir is saying to Anastasia, why are you, you, you're, you're, you're saying things to me in a different way? It was when they got into the discussion about language. And what she was saying, to, she said to him, well, you know, uh, he says, you're talking to me differently. And she says, well, maybe just a little bit differently. She said, but I'm talking this way to you so that you're going to have, when you recall it in order to write it, it's going to come out slightly different. And he's going like, well, I don't want you messing with me and my writing and blah, blah, blah. And she says, look, at people think that you're a bad writer and that you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know? And when she, when they get with, I went, oh my God, that's what it is. This is, the, the, the writing is different. It's got a different quality to it. And I went back to the beginning and I started just, you know, snippet looking at it and I'm going, yeah, I'm going like, yeah, this guy's a better writer in this. This is what was, what was making me like, what's different here? It's his writing. So in something that I perceived but had no knowledge of why or what, 
they give you an answer for. Uh, the the books are magical. That's all I can say. Wasn't that interesting that he was practically dead at one point when he was in Moscow? And she said, if you look for that picture that he took of himself in a train station, you will see all the modeling of his skin. He was a, a walking corpse. There was only a light in his eyes. And she was able to see that. <laughs> well, she, she demonstrates so many um, what we would consider to be magical course magic being just you know explaining energy um but the what i what i really respect about the way that the book is coming across to me is its ability to confirm and to provide images i mean i i I used to do a lot of reading you know fun reading novels and that sort of thing and i haven't in a long time so maybe it's partially because I haven't done it. But I get images in my head from reading her stuff that are so solid in my head that, I mean, I almost can walk around in them. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Um, and that's why I say that that there's a couple of episodes that are – the the imaging is so clear that they're they're disturbing. Um, before you sit out, before thing, you, the, the thing that happened to that team that wanted to kidnap right. her. She she's well she doesn't but they get sent to hell. And the um, description of that was um, very graphic. And I also had to think about you when I was reading it because of the concept of the lower body and the separation. Yeah, that that was interesting. When you take, when you separate that higher soul, you see how the bodies react. You know, they couldn't control what they were doing. It was just downright awful. There was nothing. They could, all they could do was witness it. So, yeah, it's a uh, it, it and the story itself took on a lot of. Di- well, we've only read the three. And each one of them has been distinctly different mm-hmm. in the presentation of the story. So, um, and there's eight altogether, I think. I think it's a total of eight. So this is going to be a, a fun thing. And um, I'm trying to think. Let me just look at the notes if there was anything that I kind of thought to tell you guys or go over. She did make that remark that made me think that she was acknowledging entities. Do you remember that discussion? Well, uh, I haven't finished the book. I do remember reading uh, a chapter specific on channeling. That people were claiming that, oh, they're they're here. They're they're saying that they're channeling you and you're telling them to come here. And she says, I haven't invited anybody. And then she goes on to elaborate as to what it is that these people are hearing. Yeah, can you expand on that? At the end of that particular chapter, when she gives you the distinction, when you know that you're listening to a positive entity as opposed to a a negative entity, and when you're listening to a negative entity, it it begins to seduce you. Yes, listen to what I'm saying, and you'll be, you'll be, your life will be more important, and you'll be better and higher and more famous than the other ones around you, and, and it's just fluffing up your ego. 
So she says that they do that. That's the way they talk to you to get you to listen. So so said, and they can also talk good. This is good and give you the the right answers. <laughs> but it was the way that you felt about it. You know, if you feel joy and happiness towards this this information, then it's it's good. If you know, it's basically if you hear the message and it feels bad, get away from it. Get away from it. Yep. It doesn't matter how pretty the words are. But, well, this is the old. Uh, <clears throat> Um, Yogananda used to quote this saying, which I think it's it's a common English saying that the devil can quote scripture to suit his ends. So you know, <laughs> he can go around walking with a lot, with a Bible in his hands, and still the devil. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm trying. I was just sitting here thinking. She, she hasn't really talked that much about. The different religions. He does. He gets bent about them because he's had some weird run-ins. But we got that. Um, and there, she's very uh, continually harps. Not continually harps, but con, there's a, the, the continual thread through her teachings is how powerful human beings are, and that it's your thoughts that are creating i mean she, she says things differently but you know reality is what you think it is and no. the more you focus on something the more real it's going to become and she does very much put it in the hands of human beings don't blame anybody else because reality sucks it's in your head <laughs> <laughs> well but you notice the specific distinction she makes that the human what she refers to as the human because that's the thing that that young man said in the video, that in Russian, the word for man is literally translates as higher mind. So in English, we're reading the word man with a capital M. That was the only thing that they could come up with. When What, what she calls a human, what she calls a man, is that immortal soul, that immortal spirit in the body. Because you notice what happened when the, when the soldier emptied his entire cartridge of, of bullets onto her. And and she said, you know, what you did was entirely instinctive. There was no intelligence behind your actions. And she says, that's bad. When that happens, there is no more human. It's just a body acting on pure instinct. You remember that part? Biological robot. Yep. So a human is not just a body walking around. That's not a human. That's a, that's a body. But human is the entire thing all together. And she, that's what she keeps repeating. So just because you're wearing a human body, that doesn't necessarily make you a human if you're asleep at the wheel. <clears throat> and there was that beautiful story about the girl who had been uh, diagnosed with a bad heart and her mother had brought her to the grandparents because she couldn't deal with it plus she was a, a drunk or something didn't have a very good life so the little girl had always been brought up as a sickly person and you know and then Anastasia works with her and she completely changes around because of the way that she's thinking now and not only does she change the way that she is interacting with her environment 
she now is interacting as if she's coming from a standpoint of strength. And she starts to do things that physically somebody of her size would be very difficult to um, do. But she had the dog that was helping her. And she yeah. starts cleaning up this little village. And pretty soon the other villagers started cleaning up too because she was telling them, you got to clean this up. We can't keep letting. So it was as he presents these rather outlandish theories of his, if he's making them up, he proceeds to tell you where this is real. Yeah. And the, the, the most powerful lesson that I got from that little story of the little girl is quite simply that when she first met Anastasia, the little girl is you know, sickly and is waiting for love to come to her. It's waiting. She's waiting to be rescued from her condition in life. And, and Anastasia teaches her, you have to give it. You want to harvest, you want to collect that love, you want that love to come to you, then you have to start expressing it and giving it out. Like when she says, you know, if you're, if you, if you're dreaming that your mom, mama is going to come and visit you, well, are you going to receive her empty-handed or are you going to make a present for her? So then that's what the little girl started doing, pouring more and more and more love into everything around her because she realized, she realized Anastasia's words. If I want my mama to be happy when she sees me, she has to see me good and strong and healthy. She shouldn't see me, you know, like a walking corpse. <laughs> and in an environment of happy, clean and other people that are joyful. We're at the end of the show. I thank you again so much for um, being here, Walton, and just, you know, sharing the Anastasia uh, <laughs> show. I, I, I don't even know where we're going next. Colleen, what do you got coming up next? Are you muted? She's left the building. Apparently she's got nothing coming up next. <laughs> Um, we thank you all out there. Um, it, you know, not only just the, in the, the live chat, but, you know, those of you that come from all over the world to listen to what we say, we appreciate you. Again, you can reach Walt at newparadigmtools.net. So, Colleen, are you there? I am. Sorry, okay. I was feeding the baby. Oh, that's okay. That is acceptable. So um, we're really done with the show. Thank you so very, very much. Um, everybody have a great night, and um, we'll see you next time. Good night, everybody. Night. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Teaching, preaching, the unknown. You have been listening to the Cosmic Reality Radio Show, produced by Cosmic Reality Radio. Thank you for listening. Choose your heart as a